All right, let's do this part first. My name is Brace. Hello, I'm Liz. We are, of course, as always, joined by producer Young Chomsky, and this is Trunan. Hello. Hello. Before we forget, there's a few things we need to get out of the way before we forget. Number one, because I can see Young Chomsky's eyes boring oh into me God. if I don't mention this. There are, is some ambient noise in the background of our <laughs> guesses, uh, guests. Uh, you might recognize it from your sound machine that mm-hmm. your girlfriend hates that you use. Oh, interesting reversal there. She's not yeah. using the sound machine? No, it's always the guy. Yeah. Well, where I come from, uh, the sound machine is the girlfriend. If you know what I mean, um, but uh, where do you come from? The place where they again, they just keep talking and don't let me finish my thought. No, um, but uh, yes, there are African lovebirds in uh, our guests' room, which I think is <laughs> insanely charming. And so, if you're like, oh, I, it's I'm get distracted by the beautiful chirpings of African lovebirds. Um, don't listen to this podcast or get distracted by it and then just hit pause, rewind because you got distracted. Mm-hmm. Or maybe That's get okay. some birds of your own. It's okay to get distracted by the lovebirds. They're mm-hmm. lovebirds. But then you just hit that old pause button, little rewind, little 30 second hop over, hop mm-hmm. on back 30 seconds, start it up again, refocus. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Liz, we are, we are taking, we are hopping on a little boat today and going down to the uh, Pacific. Um, in fact, I read some, listen, I can't figure it out. Some people think it's in Asia. Some people say it's in the South or it's a Pacific Island. To Mm. me, it's both. But we're going down to the Philippines. Uh, For those who do not know, uh, there is an election coming up in the Philippines um, in early March. Big election, exactly. Uh, Where Bong Bong Marcos, a.k.a. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., but he is called Bong Bong Marcos. We're not just calling him that. BBM um, is running alongside Sarah Duterte, the current president, Rodrigo Duterte's daughter. Uh, the way the elections work in the Philippines is they have a separate election for pre- – I mean, it's the same election day, but you vote for a president and vice president separately, which, by the way, I think they should do here too. Um, Chaos. Yeah. Kamala and Trump. They should – you know what they should do here? Switch it what? off every cycle. So one year you vote for a joint ticket. The next time I like you vote that. for separate. Just I keep like everyone that. on their toes. Yeah, that's good. Because I mean, that, that'll, that'll – yeah, people are forgetting that'll lead to some wacky combos. I want to um, say that our guest mentions um, at some point during the interview uh, the kind of reformist – classic reformist revolutionary split in his own um, – resistance party movement, however you want to call it. And the, the reformists classically, you know, they have all this constitutional, you know, thing changes they want to make. Um, one of them being the term limits, of course, mm-hmm. to the, you know, the presidency, um, particularly, you know, after the Marcos dictatorship, this was a huge point that there would never be, you know, you could only have one, one term limit only can never run again, a.k.a. that's why Duterte is not running again in this election coming up. And yet, in classic reformist fashion, doesn't do what they think it's going to do. No. We still got the same old characters coming back with a vengeance. Fucking Brumaire, you know, over and over again mm-hmm. over there in the Philippines. And yeah, Marcos's kid and Duterte's kid running Unity Ticket. Exactly. I mean, not really. 
although Bong Bong is running with yeah. talking about unity a lot. So yeah, they're and they're running. Yeah, they're running. They're running together. Um, yeah, yeah. They. I gotta say, if you're elected to any sort of public office in the Philippines, there is mm. a 99 percent chance that every single family member you have, including cousins and aunts, will be elected to like everything from dog catcher to governor at some <laughs> point within the next 10 years. Um, it is a it is a it is a country that has a a small amount of very close knit families running quite a lot of the country's affairs. Um, yeah, and that has that has not been great for it. Um, th- you know, the guy we're talking to today uh, is a a pretty renowned figure uh, in the Philippines for a number of reasons, for his activism, uh, for his family, although for rather different reasons than than Marcos, um, and uh, and for for being a playwright as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we had wanted to mention that it does get rather heavy during certain portions of this. Uh, you know, this was somebody who was, uh, who was tortured during the Marcos regime and whose family was, um, you know, had members killed and, uh, had a, had a, had a difficult go of it during martial law. Um, so if that is, that is something that you cannot listen to for whatever reason, uh, I would advise you maybe to wait until the next episode. Well, we will be talking about the Boston bombing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's, what do we always say, Liz? Well, I know that you always say this, but I don't want to say it, but I will say it because I can't think of anything else, which is let's roll the tape. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main part of the show. We have with us today uh, Bonnie Illagan. Uh, he's an activist, a, uh, a martial law resistor, and uh, the c- convener of the campaign Karma, Campaign Against the Return of the Marcuses and Martial Law. And uh, we are very happy to have you with us today. Uh, Bonnie, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you course. so much for coming. Um, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, we talked about this before, before starting the episode, but, uh, you know, the, what, what we want to convey today is, is, is really sort of to personalize your experience and to blow it out and talk about sort of the larger, uh, political situation in, in the Philippines that, uh, that, that really represents. And so I, I'd figured, uh, we'd, we'd start off by asking you about your own life, um, because that's, that seems pretty inextricably linked with the experience of the martial law, uh, in the Philippines. Um, and uh, you know, I know you were arrested in the 1970s and held for a couple of years. And uh, and I, I figured I, I would just want to ask you about what led you to that point. Like, what you know, what was your own political experience uh, throughout the early part of the Marcos era, pre-martial law, and then uh, what brought you into contact with uh, the security services? And you know, why why were they looking at you? In 1969, I came to the big city that is mm-hmm. uh, metropolitan <laughs> Manila. Yeah. from a province uh, south of, of, of the city to enroll at the state university, the University of the Philippines. I wanted to be a lawyer. 1969 was the eve of uh, something that happened that defined my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- I had been forewarned about being at the state university because it was, they said, uh, some kind of a nest for agitators. Mm. But I didn't uh, 
care about that because, as I said, I wanted to be a lawyer. But somehow I, I got uh, attracted to that little movement that was starting at the State University in 1969. There were groups of students that were conducting um, study sessions about mm -hmm. uh, the situation in the Philippines. I joined one of the study sessions, not for anything else, but uh, to be more informed so that I could, you know, um, answer more sufficiently the essay questions in my uh, <laughs> sociology, sociology uh, subjects. So you started hanging out in, with these people in order to get, you know, some extra credit in. That's right. Mm, classic be move. Before I knew it, uh, the 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 uh, interest about what was happening in the country got the better part of me. By 1970, the uh, storm that defined my generation's uh, life happened. That was it. Was it's called the, the first quarter storm of 1970. First mm -hmm. quarter to mean the first three months of 1970, when uh, student activists. Uh, went out uh, to the streets protesting the situation in the country. You know, corruption, um, poverty, you know, every, every sort of problem that uh, I thought was just uh, beyond me. But I, I, so I joined uh, the rallies and that was it. After 19, after the first quarter of 1970, I became an activist uh, mm -hmm. without me really realizing that I had not been attending classes. Uh, I had been more out, <laughs> out in the streets and, you know, um, trying to find more about the situation among striking workers, among the urban poor, among the peasants uh, in the provinces. Well, because the Philippines at this time uh, was a hugely poor country, right? I mean, I, I know there were some urban middle classes and some, you know, uh, these sort of capitalist centers in some of the cities, but a lot of the country I know was 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 made up of urban, or excuse me, uh, rural poor. And that, that that was that the situation you were kind of looking at and, you know, realizing what was going on here? That is right. That is right. So I, I saw the disparity between what the government officials, the politicians were saying about mm -hmm. the country being developed, being progressive, you know, while on the ground, people were living in extreme impoverishment, lack of services, things like that. At that time, it was Marcos's uh, second term. Uh, mm -hmm. The constitution at that time allowed uh, the president to have second, a second, first, and second terms. Mm. It was his second and last term, and word was around that uh, he was trying to do something so that he could, he could become president after, even after the uh, constitutional provision. Yeah, I know there was a pretty. Um, uh contentious constitutional convention around this time in order to amend the constitution to allow him to, to run for a third term. Yes. Um, it, it, that's a good thing that you mentioned, the constitutional convention. During my time, the activist uh, movement was divided into two camps. 
mm-hmm. on the one hand, there was the um, radicals. <laughs> uh, and I was part of the, the radical wing of the activist movement. On the other hand, there was the uh, reform, reformist uh, section. The reformist section was saying that uh, our last card for salvation was the constitutional convention, that everything would change if only the constitution could be changed. And even that last card of the reformist uh, section of the activist movement, you know, was corrupted by the Marcoses. Um, mm-hmm. The Marcoses uh, bribed the delegates to the constitutional convention, convention so that they could do away with the provision uh, disallowing Marcos to become president for the third time. And, well, that's 1971, as, as uh, everybody knows. In 1971, um, things happened quite fast. There were events that uh, created some kind of a situation that allowed Marcos to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. So he did suspend the privilege of the writ. Many among us were arrested. And uh, I I thought I was one of those in the blacklist. The blacklist is uh, Mm -hmm. a military order of battle that listed uh, wanted uh, personalities. So even before the suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus was declared, I decided to leave the university altogether and join the underground movement that was at that time starting to form. I mean, what was that like? I mean, that's that's a pretty big change to go from from living you know, on the university, attending these classes, or at this point, maybe not attending classes, to, to essentially being a fugitive on the run. Yeah, that is right. Uh, well, it helped that uh, many of us did the same thing. <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> We were many that left uh, the university um, and started what we thought uh, was uh, our duty as uh, citizens, young citizens of, 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 of the Philippines. And uh, of course, Marcos lifted the suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus only to declare martial law in 1972. So that was that was it. More of us uh, joined the underground resistance movement. So so you're underground for a period of about two years, um, as far as I know, right? Right. Um, well, a little less than two years. One year and seven months. Mm-hmm. And 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 I mean, I think I. I you know, to to a foreigner and growing up, you know, sort of what I knew about the Marcos is is about two things. One. That Imelda Marcos had a lot of shoes, and two that uh, there was a period of martial law in the Philippines, which is I think when when people talk about Marcos being a dictator, that's generally what they refer to. I mean, there's quite a few other things you could put under that umbrella, but uh, you know the the suspension of of rights and also the the you know the militarization of large parts of society and uh, and making it you know essentially any opposition illegal de facto uh, if not always uh, under the law. Um, 
I mean, did you see, you know, you were underground at this point, so I don't know how much you're seeing, but, you know, what sort of changes did you witness in Philippine society, uh, you know, at this point? Because prior to this, I mean, you guys had been a, uh, a essentially a, a non-colony or you'd gotten your freedom from America in you know, 1946 and had had this sort of, uh, you know, fledgling bourgeois democracy. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's, it's martial law, you know, the president's entering his third term. Um, you know, what, 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 what sort of, um, outlook, I guess, did you have and what, what changes did you see happening in Philippine society? Well, even before Marcos did what he did, he had, he had a plan. Um, he had stacked up the cabinet, the government bureaucracy with military officers, retired and active military officers. And, uh, Word was around too that uh, he would do something as drastic as, as that. So we were sort of prepared. But mm -hmm. even as we were prepared in that sense, we somehow <laughs> uh, could not believe that Marcos yeah. would really declare martial law. Mm -hmm. uh, and before we knew it, uh, even before Marcos spoke to the public about the declaration of martial law, he had unleashed the military to arrest um, all opposition personalities, you know, politicians, uh, media people, uh, church people, unionists, uh, activists. Mm -hmm. So when he publicly announced uh, martial law on September 23, 1972, all the, the camps had been full with uh, political detainees. Yeah. And in, in 1974, you, you yourself ended up at one of these camps. That is right. That is right. It was April uh, 1974, when the military raided the underground house I was staying in with uh, the journalist Jose Lacaba and UP professor Stephen, uh, Dolores Stephens Feria. Mm -hmm. Oh, you got arrested alongside a professor too. That is right. So we were three in the underground house. Um, the unit that got us was called the fifth Constabulary Security Unit, one of the most notorious intelligence units in the military. In the, in the underground house, we were immediately manhandled. Uh, I, I knew what was going to happen in a way because even before we were arrested, we had learned about our comrades being arrested mm. earlier and what they they experienced but somehow as uh, <laughs> as i was being tortured right in the house i couldn't believe that it was happening to me um i felt numb honestly yeah. i didn't feel the pain mm. i yeah. was numb i was numb all over uh I was dazed and yeah. I mean, there, there's there's sort of situations in life where you think that you know, even though it's happening to you, it's like this is in your head. It's like this is this is something that happens to other people, or this is this isn't happening to me right now. Like I'm sort of 
observing this from outside my body. Right, right. And at daybreak, uh, the military unit that got us took us to Camp Krame. Camp Krame is the general headquarters of the Philippine Constabulary. I thought in Camp Krame, the treatment would be different because it was the headquarters of the constabulary, mm. but I was completely wrong. That was where the torture, you know, uh, really, really happened and almost did me in. Uh, yeah, and the torture was most intense in the first few days, uh, one mm. week, I think, uh, because we knew that our captors needed to squeeze information from us the earliest at the earliest possible time. At mm. that time, we still had what they called tactical value. After a week, we wouldn't have any tactical value at all. So that was when mm -hmm. the torture was most in intense. But, you know, even after the first few days, the torture went on. Uh, because the intelligence unit held on to us. I mean, this, this is what they usually did during that time. You are captured, you are tortured, you undergo intense interrogation, and after a week or so, you are transferred to a different, to, to a regular detention center. A regular detention center is managed by, you know, regular soldiers who... Yeah, like a, like a, a military prison or something. Yeah, who were not part of the intelligence unit. So they didn't, they didn't care about uh, intelligence matters. But we were not transferred to a regular detention center. Why do you think that was? They thought uh, we were high up in the, in the hierarchy of the mm. underground movement. And so we experienced torture and dehumanization in the entire period that we were held by the intelligence unit. Uh, by dehumanization, it's something like this. For almost eight months, yeah, we didn't have a comfort. We didn't have toilets. We peed in cans, tin cans, mm -hmm. and did our thing on newspaper pages. Uh, and we were about 20, 25 in that small cell. And everything was happening in that, in that small cell. It was only when a delegation of Amnesty International visited us in camp that uh, we were moved to a building that was mm -hmm. still under the intelligence unit, but already had, you know, uh, toilets. Yeah. So, that, so you were you're moved to a, what was a more traditional cell type environment. That is right. 
And I mean, were they even trying to get information out of you at this point? I mean, yeah, like, like, like you mentioned, after a week, you know, there's really not much you could divulge to these people that would be of any use to them. But at, yeah. at that point, it just seems like they would be just doing it solely to inflict pain uh, upon political enemies of the, the, the government. Yes. Well, the intelligence unit uh, regularly conducted operations. And so every so often they would arrest more of us, these documents. And every time that it happened, we would be taken in their interrogation rooms and forced to decode the documents that they exist, identify people. I gotcha. Yeah. How long did that back and forth go on for? Oh, for... For the long, longer part of my detention, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, when there were no more questions to ask, they would just, you know, um, inflict harm on us just for, for the fun of it. Mm-hmm. One day when it was the anniversary of the Philippine Constabulary, so it was a festive, it was a festive day in the whole camp. Uh, there was music, there were, you know, food and drinks. And before the day ended, a group of um, soldiers entered our cells and tortured us for, you know, just for the fun of it, because it was the anniversary of the of the constabulary. Jesus, yeah. I mean, how, how, yeah. It's it's, you know, I I I know you mentioned that you were you were under uh, detention for for a couple of years. I mean, how do you even stay? I guess sane during all of that, right? Because you know they uh, again, like you mentioned, they they had lifted the writ of habeas corpus. There was no, there had been no like ju- jury trial or anything like that. I mean, it, it just seems like you had totally disappeared in sort of the black morass of the uh, the intelligence services. I mean, how do you keep? You know, if you're in a normal prison, you, you at least have like a date of parole or a date of release that you're looking forward to. But in an instance like this, I mean, what w- what did you use to? Uh, I guess to not totally lose sanity or hope or anything like that after some time we were allowed to associate with one another in the camp um Mm -hmm. for some time we were incommunicado we were not even allowed to speak Mm -hmm. to one another but after a few months that was when they decided we could you know go out in the corridor and uh, um do our macrame Mm -hmm. uh things like that. But we were not allowed reading materials uh, for some time. And for some time, too, we were disallowed visitors. But as I mentioned, when the Amnesty International team visited us, things changed uh, for the better. So after uh, you said you were there for for the majority of your stay, and then you were eventually transferred to a regular prison or a, no. a regular military prison? No? No, no, no. I was released right from the intelligence, uh, custody of the intelligence unit. My God. And after, w- one of the conditions for my temporary release was that I would report to the camp every week. You know, so you to, had to go back every week. Yes, to tell them what I was doing for the last for the <laughs> last week. Jesus. And of course, the threats always hanging over you at that point. It's like, well, you know, you come back here, we can just you know turn the key, and you're you're locked inside again. I mean, that's yes. terrifying. That is right. You know, and uh, you know, from 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 what I know of your story is is you actually re-enrolled at UP at that point. 
Yes, I did. I did. I think I, I, I felt that was the most sane thing to do under the <laughs> circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Were, were you trying to become a lawyer again, or did you have a different interest in this? Because I would say, at this point, I would have lost a little bit of faith, uh, perhaps, in the, the, the legal system of the Philippines. <laughs> yes. Being a lawyer, you know, became part of a distant past. Uh, <laughs> I re-enrolled in a different course. I took Philippine studies and discontinued political science. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 you know, when I realized that it was my second chance at life, on the one hand, on the other hand, things had not changed mm-hmm. even a bit. I thought uh, sooner or later I'd be doing the same thing all over again. And so I didn't even care to apply for graduation mm. after having finished all my academic requirements. Was it sort of just figuring like, oh, well, sooner or later, they'll just have me back in, back in the uh, military intelligence building. Right. I decided I should go back to where I came from. Uh-huh. Back, back home? No, back to the underground movement. Mm. Ah, I understand. Yeah, because I, I know around this time, too, you lost your sister. That is right. That's one of the reasons why the decision was not difficult for me to join, rejoin the underground movement. Um, a month or so after I was released, it was my sister's turn to be arrested. No, not arrested, abducted. Mm-hmm. Um, she went missing we were informed that she was missing and my mother started looking for her in the various camps. And every time that she did, the answer was no. Uh, She was not in any of the military camps. But I knew that my sister had been taken in because before she she went missing, we were able to talk twice. At that mm-hmm. time, she was in the underground. I felt bad about me meeting her because I knew I was being surveilled upon and she was mm-hmm. deep into the underground. But, you know, we had not talked for a long time and I decided to risk and met her and we did. That was the first time. The second time... Uh, We met again because she needed help. She wanted me to find a safe place for them to transfer because some of their comrades had already went, uh, had had been missing. And we said, yes, I will find, I said, yes, I will find a house for you. We met, uh, we decided to meet for the third time and she never, she never appeared. She never came. God, yeah, and so I—I I, I mean, I can imagine you immediately knew what happened or thought you knew what happened, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it she, she she was never found at any of the camps, right? Never, she was never found. Th- they were ten. They were ten in the in the group, um, and two of the ten were found in a ravine in in a province. Uh, Mutilated, dead, of course, 
and mm -hmm. one was uh, exhumed in a common grave in another province. But my sister was never found to this to this date. We we knew, of course, uh, we did our our search, our research, and mm -hmm. we knew that they were abducted by a special intelligence unit called Ground Team 205. This was a special unit, a composite unit in uh, southern Luzon. Um, mm. It was led by a Colonel Alexander Gallido, who even became general during the time of Cory Aquino. Mm. So this group uh, abducted mm. the 10. And uh, the case of my sister was one of the cases that we brought up when we filed the uh, uh, the case against uh, the Marcos estate in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, we will we will definitely get to that that in a little bit. That's the, that's the one from the nineteen the early nineteen nineties, correct? That is right. Yeah. Um, you know, for 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 you know, I, I I'm not sure exactly how familiar our listeners are, but most of our listeners are based uh, in America, Canada. Um, but there was something around. It was over three thousand people who were kind of confirmed killed by the government during the martial law era. Correct? Yes, uh, but I think that is uh, a very conservative uh, estimate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, that's 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 another thing we always ask people to keep in mind is that like any numbers like that, especially numbers that have sort of been agreed upon in history, are usually orders of magnitude lower mm -hmm. than they actually tend to be in reality. So even with all this, you still decided to go back to and join the and join the underground movement or rejoin the underground movement. Yes, um, I, I thought. Uh... That was the best thing to do for me under the circumstances. Well, mm -hmm. I knew I could, I could have you know chosen another path, but everything about me said, you know, uh, do what I need I needed to do, and I stayed in the underground again for seven seven years. Uh, past the administration of President Corey. And during the term of President Fidel Ramos in 1994, I was arrested again. Uh-huh. Well, so during, dur during, during this period, too, you were also writing plays that were being produced in Manila. Yes, under different uh, pen names. <laughs> ah, okay. That makes more sense to me now then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because some of these were pretty big plays too. Yes. In fact, I was able to have one of my teleplays produced by a big television station. I used mm. a different, uh, yeah, a pen name. <laughs> While you were in the underground. Right. <laughs> that's, that, that's incredible. I'm curious what it is about theater that kind of, you know, in this moment you were drawn to kind of as a kind of political art, like what it was about that medium that seemed to be maybe the best outlet for you during this time? In my younger days, I realized that uh, the arts 
where one of the best uh, ways by means by by which we could get our message across to people you know uh mm-hmm. they they'd rather watch plays um listen to music uh, listen to poetry rather than read long drawn out manifestos <laughs> yes you know and i sort of got attached to that kind of thinking because i i i, I knew i learned firsthand that that was really very effective while in mm-hmm. the provinces we were doing exactly that you know we were hopping from one place to another presenting our our uh, theater to people that uh, didn't have any high formal education and they 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 would get the point oh so i i I, I wasn't aware of that but but you were actually going around with with the underground actually you know having people perform these plays for 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 audiences while essentially on the run from the government yes in 19 in the 1970s we were we succeeded in forming different theater groups all over the philippines so mm-hmm. when martial law was uh, declared uh, the theater groups uh, persisted because mm-hmm. we th- they were far from the reach of uh, the military in you know in uh, the centers of uh, of of power so in secluded barrios they could do uh theater that's fascinating um yeah i mean your 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 first play which was i believe it's your first play uh i can't, i don't know how to pronounce it in uh tagalog but uh liturgy of the masses and i had read that uh that you ended up writing that because the the only reading material you were allowed in prison was a bible and so you read it back to back um, yeah yes yes um the intelligence unit that uh, held us disallowed reading material so one day my mm-hmm. sister thought the bible would be allowed and she was they can't right. say no to that <laughs> yeah yes. that's a, that's and she, a, that's she a was good right idea. so i had this big king james version illustrated <laughs> <laughs> bible and i had nothing to read but the bible so i read the bible and i became familiar with many of the parts that talked about freedom for from for, for slaves you know uh, freedom from unjust rulers and things like that so when i was released i was uh, asked by a church congregation to write a play for a forum a religious forum that was being held in Hong Kong i accepted the job i wrote the play and i called it pagsambang bayan or people's worship or liturgy of the masses and it followed the order of worship but i used the order of worship to let the congregation the people talk about what was happening to them in spite of what the priest was saying mm. you know the ideal situation mm-hmm. and uh, the play was a hit 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds quite subversive, too. It was. It was subversive. In fact, uh, on opening night, I was completely nervous. <laughs> because even as I had used a pen name, at the end of the play, I was acknowledged as the, <laughs> as the playwright. So I had to stand up, you know, and wave to, to, the, <laughs> to the audience. And I had to uh, step aside for some time because the director of the play got arrested. That's mm -hmm. right. Together with their musical director. So I stayed out of circulation for some time. But it was good that uh, my sister got some connection that told me to report to the military, submit a copy of the script, and that was it. That was when you went underground? No, no. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had another chance, so back to the university, went on my quote-unquote merry, merry life and uh, wrote place again. Uh, I, by the way, I entered the play in a contest and it won. <laughs> so I was encouraged. <laughs> so I, was, I yes. was encouraged. I wrote another play, entered in, in a better known contest uh -huh. <laughs> and it won again. So, I mean, yeah, because you you wrote. I mean, I have read your credits. You you've written quite a few plays and run quite won quite a few contests. You're doing a lot of this also while you're on the run from a government that had imprisoned and tortured you for multiple years, killed members of your family. I yes. mean, that is. Uh, and, and here's the thing: on my third attempt, I wrote another play and uh, j joined a contest that was sponsored by no less than the Cultural Center of the Philippines. <laughs> was it Imelda Marcos in charge of that? Exactly. And it won again, first prize. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I imagine it makes it a little difficult to actually accept the prizes uh, if, you are, if you are on the underground. Maybe you can have like a proxy go for you. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, uh, so that, that led me to my, if you can call it, career. Mm. I never realized that I was going to be some kind of a writer, a playwright. But that went on. And uh, yeah. Well, well you, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you were in the underground until, until the 1990s. Um, and, uh, and, and for those listening who aren't familiar with the history, uh, <laughs> Marcos and the Marcos family left the Philippines in 1986 uh, on some military, U.S. military helicopters given to them by uh, old friend Ronald Reagan. Um, and they were whisked off to Hawaii where they're greeted with lays by the governor. After that, Cory Aquino uh, became president, um, and there was sort of a, a return to, to democracy. Um, and, and for a little while, the, the, the Marcoses actually had to, to stay out of the country. I mean, I know that Ferdinand Marcos died a few years later in Hawaii. Um, you know, what, one of the reasons that we really wanted to talk to you today is because your memory and your experience with martial law is fading, um, or at least the, the memory in, in Philippine society is fading or is changing. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a far cry from sort of the masses of people of all social classes taking to the streets to, to get Marcos out, uh, to where his son has a commanding lead, um, to become the next president, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. 
uh, who is who is known, I guess, sort of popularly as Bong Bong Marcos, um, is is running for president uh, in tandem with Duterte's uh, Rodrigo Duterte's daughter Sarah. And uh, it looks like at least he and probably she are, are both favored to win their positions. You know, I, I, I guess my question here is, you know, you, you, you and, and thousands, tens of thousands of other people, I mean, hundreds of thousands of other people in the Philippines were deeply affected by the experience of martial law. Um, you know, how does it, uh, have, have you seen sort of the historical memory of that fade over time? Uh, in, in the wider society and, 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 or shift or, or, or change or, 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 you know, become something else because, you know, to, to my, my dad who'd, who'd spent some time in the Philippines in the eighties uh, and had had some bad experiences with the government, even though he was just there as a tourist, um, you know, he was shocked to learn that, that it was, it was very likely that, that Ferdinand Marcos's son was going to become president. Um, you know, is it, is it, is it surprising to you at this point? Uh, both both ways, Brace. Well, first, you can say that again about memory fading. Uh, even me, I, I, I have been experiencing memory, memory loss. I couldn't anymore remember details. But uh, yes, I am surprised and not surprised at the same time. I couldn't believe that this could be happening in the Philippines about the son of the dictator being able to reclaim their lost glory, so to speak. At the same time, I also realized that they had worked for this years back, mm. and now they are reaping the benefits of uh, their, their scheme. When you say that, what do you mean specifically? What what had the Marcos has done over the past, you know, couple decades? Um, first, they tried to return to the Philippines. Mm. Uh, President Cory Aquino did not make that happen. The next president after Aquino made that happen, uh, but somehow the Marcoses were able to push some more. And eventually, the corpse of the dictator was allowed first to be transferred to where he came from in the Ilocos uh, region in northern Philippines. And for in all this time, the Marcos family, I think, did their assignment and slowly but surely crept into... Mm the body politic of the Philippines, you know, bef uh, renewed friendship with their cronies, uh, with politicians uh, of the same mold, uh, tested the waters and ran for different positions, won and lost. And I think they also did their math and they knew that at this point in time, the greater number of Filipinos mm, would no longer have any direct experience about mm -hmm. martial law. And they are right. Right now, the Commission on Elections is saying that at least 57, 56, 57 percent of the registered voters are in the, in the 18 to 40 age bracket, yeah. which means they never experienced martial law. So mm -hmm. 
So this is the percentage of the population that is vulnerable to the false narratives, to the deception, to the lies that they had been feeding into the social media. Mm. The social media is a great multiplier of, of facts as well as lies. During my time, there was no social media. So it was rather difficult for lies to, you know, uh, multiply in that, uh, in, that, in that manner. But now they could, they could do it. And they had the, the money, the wherewithal, so to speak, to do it because they still controlled the ill-gotten wealth that the government said they took from, from the people, from government coffers. Yeah, before this, Bryce and I were watching some of the Facebook and TikTok videos that the Bong 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 Bong's campaign had been put had put out. I mean, he's like a total social media sensation. It's really remarkable and scary what he's achieved online. Um, and we both Bryce and I were talking because we were so curious about how this period in Filipino history, the in in Mar- you know the the years of the Marcos dictatorship. Uh, and leading into, and then specifically during the martial law years, how that was taught mm-hmm. to these kids, and basically, you know, how, how basically how the country has has treated that in the in the years since. Yes, it also helped a big deal that government institutions failed to do what they were mm-hmm. supposed to do, and that is to make sure that the lessons of history, specifically martial law, were you know taught were inculcated in in the school curricula but nothing of that sort happened after uh, marcos was uh, kicked out of power the the uh, goal of uh, keeping the lessons of history alive became second third priority in the scheme of things even our Department of Education failed to make sure that textbooks in schools are accurate, you know, and depicted what really happened. The opposite actually happened. I tried to read three, four textbooks in 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 in, in high school in the elementary grades, mm-hmm. and what were told in the f- four or five pages were completely completely opposite of uh, the reality. Something like this. In 1970, the Philippines had degenerated into chaos and turmoil. And so by 1972, the president had to declare martial law to see to it that peace and order is observed. Mm. But by that very statement, you know, what do you expect? Yeah. And after that, what were written were, you know, the achievements of uh, the martial law regime, you know, fantastic buildings being built, uh, thousands of kilometers of roads, you know, bridges, hospitals. Not even saying that these projects were, yes, uh, created, they did happen, but, but, the Marcoses had, you know, a big percentage of the funding 
you know, that allow these projects to be built. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a sort of no downplaying the fact that the Marcoses looted the Philippines. Uh, I mean, in 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 one of the most audacious acts of a of a kleptocracy that I think you can really point to in the 20th century. I mean, they really, I mean, they 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 I think left the Philippines with at least 10 billion dollars. Um, you know, there's sort of a famous anecdote about the Melda Marcos stuffing her children's diapers full of diamonds as they were being ushered onto helicopters. Um, I mean, it is, it is, these people had wealth, you know, they're, they're, you know, there's a literacy in large parts of the country. People live in hovels and shacks, you know, there's, there's, there's basically a, a huge amounts of just extreme, extreme poverty. Uh, and they live, uh, you know, in ways that like the Romanovs could only dream of. Um, and, and much of that money is still with them. And that, that is something that I think really can't be discounted to see their rise. I mean, I know that Bong Bong is a senator. Uh, his sister is also a senator. Uh, I believe Amelda Marcos, even in her uh, twilight years, is she is some, I can't, she's like a congresswoman or something. Right. Um, yeah, which I, I have a feeling that she often d- doubt that she shows up to work much. Um, there's a there's a recent documentary that came out um, that sort of made a splash in the U.S. Uh, called "The Kingmaker" about Imelda Marcos uh, that shows her just handing out money out of the side mm. of uh, like this this weird luxury minibus that she she's she's ushered about in. Um, you know, it, it's it's these people really yeah yes they have built some hospitals. Um, they built towns that are named like Marcos and like Ferdinand and stuff like that. Um, but they, I mean, they they stole a substantial amount of money from a very poor country. Uh, I mean, they they looted it. Um, and yeah, I, one of the things that's really been sort of jarring for me, you know, somebody who also obviously didn't grow up under martial law, but is of a similar age cohort to a lot of these people. Uh, is seeing people repeat this, like, yeah, the Philippines were in chaos in the 1970s. Um, and, uh, you know, Marcos really, you know, he was like a loving paternal figure to the country. Like, he had to suffer by putting us under martial law. Like, it, you know, it hurt him more than it hurt us. Um, and they built all of these things. And it's really just sort of, it's jarring to see because even a cursory reading of the history doesn't bear almost any of that out. I mean, how does it? How does it really? I, I, you know, this is sort of a personal question, but you know, to somebody who who suffered a, a lot during this era, um, you know, does how does this, I guess, make you feel just w- with yourself when you see these things repeated, and when you see this this memory that you've tried to uh, to instill in people, um, supplanted by this sort of false narrative? I, I feel I feel bad, and that is an understatement. <laughs> um, I was a teenager when I joined the activist movement. I was around 23 when I was arrested and tortured. I'm now 70 years old. I I never for the life of me imagined that I would be facing this situation wherein there's another Marcos trying to reclaim uh, power. And it was one Marcos, the original Marcos, that we tried to, you know, uh, kick out of power. Mm -hmm. So I I can't find the exact words by which I could describe what I'm I'm feeling. 
but the only thing that's I am that I am sure of sure of is I had to pursue what I'm doing and never look back because this is one of the most consequential elections in my country. Um, the next president will be the 17th president of the Philippines. God, I, <laughs> I cannot imagine if it's going to be another Marcos. So, Mar the Marcoses know that this is their last golden opportunity. After this election, it would be a lot more difficult for them to get back, you know, to, to, to reclaim their power. In the same manner, I say that uh, this is an, an election that is of utmost importance because it could define with finality what's going to happen to, to people like me. And more than that, uh, to the generations uh, of Filipinos that are, you know, facing the dire situation of uh, living under a regime that has been brought to power on the wings of lies and ill-gotten wealth. I feel like before we wrap up, I had just a couple questions about kind of these last these last few years with Duterte and now both Marcos and Duterte being on the ballot, looking or you know kids of both Marcos and Duterte being on the ballot. I'm curious about the relationship between these two families. It feels like, um, you know, the the Filipino ruling class, these families that it's, you see these names over and over and over again, that it's almost like every year we go on, the more um, consecrated these families have become in, in the ruling class structure. I'm almost surprised to see the Duterte families and the Marcos families kind of aligned in some ways, um, considering how Duterte got his start, but they all seem to be sort of frenemies um, meaning both friends and enemies at the same time. And I'm curious if you can kind of, for our listeners and for myself, sort of uh, peel back some of the, the um, you know, the mist here and, and give some insight into how these families work for and against each other. Yeah, much is not written about regarding the relationship between Duterte and the Marcoses. Mm. But uh, here, are, here are some facts. Duterte, Dut Rodrigo Duterte himself admitted that the Marcoses contributed significant money uh, to his campaign. It was also established that of all the presidents, it was Duterte who allowed the burial of uh, Marcos to, 
what we call the libingan ng mga bayani or uh, heroes uh, cemetery even as duterte has started criticizing marcos junior as uh, not competent enough as into some drugs the truth of the matter is uh, he holds the marcoses you know as some kind of a model and duterte himself uh, said many times that his idol is and has has been and is always be uh, marcos that had not had it not been for some minions of uh, president marcos the philippines would have you know prospered like some neighboring countries of the philippines mm-hmm. uh, beyond that uh, marcos and duterte are of the same mold you know uh, they are populist rightist populist uh, they want they 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 like to ride upon the popular sentiments and drum their ideas through by saying that what the philippines needs is a leader with political will and people uh mistake you know tyrannical tendencies as political will mm-hmm. um duterte and marcos are of the same mold in the sense that they think that the military is the silver bullet that would solve you know all the problems look in the philippines when the pandemic happened it was the military that Duterte called upon, you know, yeah. to lead the agency that managed the government uh, government handling of uh, the pandemic. You know, generals, uh, military officials, not the medical professionals. Um, and so, even as Marcos might not, as, even as Duterte might not really like Marcos Jr. to become president mm-hmm. because he had all along wanted his daughter to become president. His mm. precious Sarah. Yes. Uh, well, he, she probably will someday. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that is one scenario that's been building up uh, <laughs> yeah. in these parts about uh, Marcos being disqualified after mm. having been proclaimed so that uh, the government, uh, the, the Supreme Court will have no choice but to oh. proclaim the vice president, Sara Duterte, as uh, president. So uh, it's, it's not easy to explain the political situation in the Philippines right now. Mm. And it will have to take some time before anyone... Mm-hmm to realize what's really happening but i think i'm coming from some secure position having lived through martial law having endured all the administrations after martial law and having to witness uh, the threat 
that is the comeback of the son of the dictator. Yeah, yeah. Well, we really appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, you know, you mentioned before that uh, that you have, you have campaigned um, against the return of the Marcoses and, and martial law. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about that and how that's received, and like, um, and about your efforts essentially to keep this historical memory alive and to fight back against this this family that it seems like um, has really clawed their way back into the popular consciousness. We initiated this network called Campaign Against the Return of the Marcoses and Martial Law in 2016. Uh, that was when the son of the dictator attempted to become vice president. Mm-hmm. And as everybody knows, he failed. Uh, the current vice president won over him. Um, Marcos Jr. protested, said he was cheated. <laughs> Luke was talking. Mm-hmm. And so there was a recount of the votes. And the recounts of the vote further increased the vote <laughs> yeah. of, of the vice, pres- of a presi- a vice Last president. Last thing you Lenny, want to happen if you do a recount. Lenny yeah. Robredo. Uh, anyway, uh, so in 2016, we formed Karma. And we never stopped. Um, I, I feel we contributed some time in the triumph of the vice president. And we pursued our goal of uh, touching base with uh, survivors of martial law, victims of uh, human rights violations all over the Philippines. So right now we have uh, what I may call chapters in the various regions of the Philippines carrying the same uh, name, karma. we are a self-help uh, network. We don't, wouldn't have any institutional support. This is a completely volunteer uh, work. And it inspires us that right now the youth have started to join karma. Mm. When we started, we were, you know, the elderly, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, the tribe that is fast uh, vanishing. But now the youth have joined us, so we have karma members who are millennials and what other names you append to. Gen Z is the one you're looking for. Those are the really crazy ones. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And I think uh, it's going to be difficult for any force to defeat something like karma, uh, which is an idea. It could only be defeated Mm -hmm. by a better idea. And what better idea than to, you know, uh, keep alive uh, the memories of resistance and uh, tell people about what really what really happened. So the first time we established karma, it was campaign against the return of the Marcoses to Malacanang. Eventually, we changed it to to martial law because we realized that it was not only the comeback of the Marcoses, which is a real threat. It is the comeback of martial law as well. Because in the Philippines, even as Duterte has not declared martial law officially, there is in fact a de facto martial law that's been existing in the Philippines on the, as after the Mar- uh, Duterte became president. You know, the best practices, or some people say worst, practices of martial law had been 
happening, uh, being observed by the military, extrajudicial killings, abductions, you know, uh, arrest of people on, tr- on trumped-up charges. These are all practices of martial law that have been carried on uh, to this day. And they've they've even expanded on some of the red tagging stuff like that. You know, we had Brandon Brandon yes. Lee on the show. During my time, him. it was not called red tagging, but now it's called red tagging. But essentially, the same uh, the same practice. And uh, oh, it's it's really Marcos Junior has some genius minds behind the campaign. Uh, they are able to ride upon the situation. For instance, uh, this thing about negative campaigning, you must have heard about it. Uh, the son of the dictator has refused to join debates because he said he would not want uh, something that uh, would, you know, divide the people some more. So he would not uh, answer mm, yes. accusations uh, that are that already belong to the past. So that's negative <laughs> campaigning for, for him. That's a very uh, convenient and, sel- and self-serving mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it would mean him uh, not uh, being forced to answer the difficult questions about uh, martial law and his role in the perpetuation of uh, the false narratives and their ability to keep their ill-gotten wealth. It must be remembered that uh, Marcos Jr. is the principal administrator and executioner of the Marcos estate. Yeah, and 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 sort of to close this out here, you know, you mentioned it, and and sort of piggybacking off of what you just said there is that you were actually part of a lawsuit in the in the '90s against him uh, in the USA. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about that, and we can kind of close out from there? Yes, um, the late attorney, the late, late lawyer uh, Capulong mm-hmm. met with many of us, and decided that uh, we filed a case against the Marcos estate. And since the Marcoses happened to be in Hawaii, we filed the case in Hawaii. And long story short, uh, we won uh, the case. And it is on record that uh, the Marcos estate is uh, duty-bound to indemnify the victims of uh, martial law. So it has been proven in a, in a court that what we had been saying that happened in the Philippines did happen. Mm-hmm. On top of that, there's this other law in the Philippines that was passed by our legislature indemnifying, recognizing and indemnifying victims of uh, human rights violations during the time of President Marcos. So now we have two official recorded documents that testify to the veracity of what we've been saying all along. These are things that uh, Marcos Jr. cannot, cannot for the life of him say are falsehoods. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I know, you know, as you, as you mentioned, he prefers generally to just avoid the question or to have very friendly interviews where he, he plays up what he says are the positive aspects of it. Um, well, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a, an honor to have you on. Uh, it's been, it's been really great to speak with you. Uh, is there, is there anything else you'd like to say before we close out tonight or this morning rather for you? Uh, I, I think I've. <laughs> I've said, I've said enough. <laughs> um, I know I must have missed uh, something. That's the way the mind of an elderly works right now. <laughs> yes, but thank you too for particip- for ask me asking me to participate in your project. No, thank yeah? you so much. It's it sure is going to help us in our crusade. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, I will, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you hopefully soon. I hope that our listeners couldn't tell how insanely nervous I was that entire time. <laughs> well, if the listeners couldn't, one, Brace just confirmed it, and two, I could. Yeah, I was like, I oh, could tell. sir, could you? Yeah. That's why I, I was know. cute. I always get like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a man. Um, we will, you know, we'll um, link to some organizations and some uh, further reading if people are interested, as well as some links to his plays and films. I think that we can provide a lot of, a lot more information in our notes for this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interested. Yeah. I'm also, I'm reading a book uh, by, cause people always are like book, book, I want to read a book. It's like, which is obviously not true because you listen to podcasts. Mm. Um, but the Sterling Seagraves book on the, uh, the Marcos dynasty is really good. And also, mm. Uh, where I actually meant to ask this during the interview, but um, where a famous uh, event happened during the Dilmun Commune, which is uh, basically a student takeover and revolt, but led to you know some actual real fighting and deaths uh, at the University of the Philippines. Um, students actually broadcast audio of President Marcos begging an American actress uh, uh, for oral sex and uh, played that on a loop on the radio, which is incredible very cool of 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 70s trolling if you have a tape of anyone in power doing that you got to put it on the radio that's a tape you got to roll yeah absolutely and a loop well with that being said if one exists of me please do not play it um and that being said my name is brace and i'm liz we are of course joined by producer young chomsky and the podcast is called liz it's called True None, and we'll see you next time. Bye bye.